Welcome to the Grow Through International Expansion podcast. I'm Oliver Dowson. Let me be your guide as to how businesses, all kinds of businesses, small and large, can grow, solve their business problems, increase their profits, and grow their value. In these podcasts, we talk to all sorts of interesting people that bring their skills, experience, and insights to all aspects of international expansion. I hope you like these podcasts. If you do, subscribe and keep listening every week. We love comments too. And do share and tell others and check out our resources on our growinternational.org website. You know, it's so easy to get it wrong, especially in far-flung foreign lands. I've done it all in my time, dressed wrong, failed to bow to the right people. And as for saying the wrong things, well, the expression open your mouth and put your foot in it was probably invented just for me. I've arrived five minutes early for a presentation in Japan, only to learn afterwards that I should have been at least 15 minutes early, if only just to be shown which seat to sit in. One doesn't really get an audience reaction in business meetings in Japan, but in this case the displeasure clearly showed. Even in North America I've been castigated, perhaps not too badly, uh, for turning up with a tie to a company with a casual dress code and without a tie to a very formal one. Of course, Sometimes the, exagger- uh, the advice is exaggerated or just plain wrong. Before my first business trip to China, I was begged to shave off my beard as I was told nobody would respect or listen to me. I refused. It turns out it didn't matter at all. It was just the preference of the person I was going with. At least it didn't matter to the people I met as the business was clearly very successful. Nevertheless, I'm still glad I had that discussion and I've learnt the hard way of learning about other cultures especially their attitudes to business and personal relationships before going to a country for the first time. It's important everywhere, but a good example of a region that's difficult for us Westerners is the Middle East. In this podcast, I'm talking with Jan de Haldevang, who's self-styled as an international culture pilot. In fact, that's the name of his company. In other words, he guides people to developing good, happy, successful and lasting business relationships internationally. I was fascinated by what he had to say. Couldn't help but agree with a lot of the points and think you will be interested too. Jan himself is a really interesting person. He was born in Arabia. He's travelled all his life. He's fluent in Arabic and German as well as English. He was a soldier in Iraq, Oman, Northern Ireland, Cyprus. Then he became a professional sales and marketing executive for some major companies, specializing, obviously, in Middle Eastern markets. And now he's the senior partner of International Culture Pilot, where he and his team help others adapt culturally to the markets they want to work in, learning how to communicate successfully in a culturally away way. So... Wherever your business is going to take you, it doesn't have to be the Middle East, could be anywhere in the world. It's absolutely essential if you're going to get the best from it to get the culture right. So take a listen to this conversation. Jan's got some really useful insights to share with us. Jan, welcome to the Growth Through International Expansion podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. So your company is called International Culture Pilot. Tell us about the culture and what you do. Uh, we spend a long time thinking about how to um, shape this. And after 30-odd years of, of working in an international arena, 
it became more and more obvious just because it was the Arab world that actually while the West thinks we're getting really really clever with technology with communications we've it feels sometimes like we think we understand human culture but actually I think the antenna have been rapidly been severed and there's a sense that we are cleverer than the human being now and yet actually deep down that still really really matters and it just happens that in the world the Middle Eastern world that sensitivity is more important still than the price than technology and then all of the wonderful advancements so I realized really fairly early on that in an environment like that, if you get the personality, the relationship, the culture right, then actually you're on the right path. And so it was for that reason. And I suppose having lived through some horrendous examples of, of someone getting it wrong, where after which it didn't matter how good the product was or cheap, and um, actually there was no recovery, I realized that culture was probably the way we did what we called it, what we did. And mm. It's been um, been the strongest part of it, and out on the back of it has come a whole science of culture, which is which which is in itself quite an interesting game. Absolutely, sounds. I, I mean, I can well appreciate the you know the differences in culture, but you're saying it's not only sort of getting it right; it's also the perception of the others are different in certain places. So. Yeah, yeah. There is a, fundamentally, I think, a, a, a sense that we in the West. Um, override or think we are cleverer um, than actually human relations and I it's vividly in front of me how many times I think I have two daughters and a lovely wife have I been into a shoe shop with one or the other of them to find a perfect pair of shoes at the perfect price to match the perfect dress and we've walked out and without anything bought to which I used to get quite frustrated and say well what happened there and the response was we didn't like the salesman that's culture it was just the chemistry wasn't there wasn't right right and that's what I'm talking about and we think we are now with that technology we're so much cleverer what my wonderful friends in the Middle East understand is that if you get that right and you get on with each other and you have a relationship and a friendship then actually price, technology and everything else will come anyway because you are now friends and understand each other and have a relationship but you can't fix it later and that's right that's so in point. fact it's, it's quite a long game hmm. it has to be I mean the, the average they used to cynically say and I think it's a little less than that that it was between five and seven meetings before you really wanted to start discussing business really I don't think it's quite that long now but I would certainly suggest that if you start from nothing in a completely blank campaign you have got to allocate somewhere in the region of three to five years used to be the average but I would comfortably say you need to have the long game and it is at least three years to build those friendships and relationships that's very substantial I remember being uh, going through sales training mm. with an American company a um, long time ago now but mm. they then watched it being given to other people far more recently and it hasn't changed that much right. and you basically the method is once you actually get a face-to-face -face meeting yeah. you have to you you, you it re they recognize the need for sort of 
um, cultural friendship. You have to basically, you're supposed to make friends with the person in the first three minutes and get the sales message completely out within five. Um, so it's a, a way different to months or years yes. of multiple meetings. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that is where many of our Western friends, some are probably more hard-driven than others. I think that some are more gentle with it. There's a wonderful, simple principle which I apply quite a lot, and that is that, and it was an unashamedly borrowed from a friend who has a, a mission statement from um, a company that he first represented in the Middle East when he was told to go to the Middle East to make friends and not money. And that was, I think, the wisest piece of advice I've ever heard in one single sentence. And that friendship can take that long. Um, uh, and they, as wise people, see that as the baseline. And then after that, you build beyond that to whatever business relationship there is. But they, as a people, I think, fundamentally un enjoy the human relationship more than actually the rather dirty business of business. It's, it's, it's more less important. And would you say that that's sort of common across the whole Middle Eastern culture, or are there many variations on a theme? I think that there can be variations on a theme, but the, the baseline of an understanding of a fundamentally, almost in the blood, Bedouin hospitality, that sense of friendship first, hmm. um, I think is, is prevalent. It might be more extreme in some other areas, some countries than others, but as a base, base behaviour, no, I've not noticed a, a major difference hmm. with all of them. So what's, what sorts of things do Westerners most often get wrong? Oh, goodness, uh, it's almost impossible to give you a single, a, a long string of, of examples, but I think probably in the first instance it's the pace at which they attempt to deliver and it is then we move into the simple behavioural codes. There are probably, and I use this a great deal, about seven areas where we have to agree to differ. There used to be this great expression, don't avoid politics, religion, and conflict. <laughs> the other one, the family, I think, was the other one. Probably a good and, idea in the, the West the, as well. In the West. And that was the great baseline here, and even in the West, that you just avoided this. But there are probably seven fundamental areas whereby our Arab friends and us have to agree to differ because we have come too far apart. And they, without listing all of them, probably the most first, the most important one is our, our treatment of family, the elderly particularly. They find that almost an anathema that cannot be right. The concept of anyone feeling too proud or so proud that he might claim that atheism is his future, I think they find that very difficult, mm -hmm. the concept that there is no God, because that to them doesn't work at all. And then beyond that, this sense that uh, commerce, that business, that, that everything can be driven much more quickly than I think the, the relationships that we talked about. So uh, those seem to be areas where we, we have to agree to differ. And the religious aspect of, of our existence is the most important, or clearly, to the Arab world. And I think you'll... Um, which is why I spend the first phase of our, our training, our induction, uh, unashamedly on uh, nearly a whole day on understanding Islam. Because if you understand Islam, then actually you're about 30% of the way on that journey. And that's an that's uh, interesting, um, interesting and important perspective. I guess that's one thing that uh, 
uh, most of us in the West really don't understand. No, no, I think it's much misunderstood. I think it is, as ever, we are judged by, by extremes, and I, that was a mistake we all make, but um, as a fundamental rule of life and of a code and of a, a daily rhythm, the sooner that anyone I work with understands that, that that faith, a functioning, healthy, and wonderfully stable faith in its pure, genuine form, is the structure, the foundation of everything in that part of the world. And yet, over here in the West, we're really almost made to be scared of it now. The, you know, the political situation, you know, terrorist incidents and so forth are, have created, okay, it's created, you know, this far-right ideology as well. But even if we just look at normal liberal individuals, the normal common people, there's still this background now of I must be scared. And it's not just being scared of, it's almost being scared of the religion, even if one hears, you know, oh no, it's not the religion, it's the people. Yes, and I think that is, so sadly, totally the wrong, um, the wrong impression, but I can understand where it's come from. Um, but that is, as I said, the first part of my induction training is that we spend a huge amount of time and just bring people back to what are, for instance, the five fundamental pillars of Islam. And once you understand that, once you understand that every aspect of their daily routine, their greetings, is all about your presence, your closeness to God and where he intends you to be, right. it changes. And you are talking to a people... And I have been privileged to work and live with them who, let's be honest, if you, if you do get on your knees three, five times a day and say, thy will be done, your mind changes. Of course it does. It has to. And you need to understand where that, where that, how that affects. I suppose it must be a very, very, you know, different perspective on life. I mean, yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, because the majority of us here in the West, I mean, we've... First of all, you know, we would never ask each other, you know, what religion are you? And we would probably never even think about it. We are sort of, my culture obviously has a big base in the historic religions, but one never stops to think about that. No, and I think we might have done, um, and indeed learnt the lessons from that, but I think that is um, it's a fundamental part of it. I, I don't think um, any of my Arab friends would say to me, whether it is obvious that you are, if you are a Christian, therefore a faith of the book, um, then then you do clearly have an understanding. They would never say, ask you, and I've never heard it being said, are you Shia or Sunni? That mm, is not mm. that is not apparent. But most definitely, the foundation of of everything that that I teach and we talk about out there has got to be on that basis, and that's where the longevity comes from, because God will provide, or God is generous. I suppose it's really an underlying um, culture as well mm. because it's not necessarily overt. I remember, you know, I recall my first um, visit to Cairo. I was sent to Cairo to um, do business um, for a, a company I then worked for when I was 21. Mm. Um, and I had probably met one or two Arabs before then, but mm. no more than that. But mm. I was sent by an Indian company. Mm -hmm. And the guidance I was given was, you must try and sell this service to um, these people, to this particular person. Um, but be very wary of the person because the day they say, you know, you are my brother, it means that they're about to stab you in the back. 
And of course, that was, I learned very quickly that that was completely different. I was also told then, oh, the culture is the same as you'll find the culture in India. It's not. No, no. And I know it's not now, no. um, but it's uh, clearly very misguided. But I never heard anybody mentioning Islam in those days. You didn't no. actually find it so much. In fact, it's mentioned more these days than it ever was, I think, before. But that may be my impression. Hmm. I think that that... That advice, as you recognise, was was probably correct. Brotherhood, um, in the expression "yachi," is 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 not something that they um, will transmit to you or pass to you very early on. You have to earn mm. that expression, and you see yourself on the journey of of friendship in a in a very gradual way. It, it's it's phased and you can tell that, that perhaps you are gaining um, the trust of the individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, none of that is overtly um, in any way a, a feeling of, of, of that religion, but there are simple and wonderful things that a Western visitor can do to prove his understanding, and I've seen some of the most effective where at least you're being conscious of the prayer call and time and therefore offering to stop a meeting or not having a meeting indeed over that period is the sort of simple respect measures that help you straight away and endear you straight away because you do respect and you understand. Yes, and would you say there's also, I mean, I was um, talking to an American company um, last week, um, looking at, uh, was trying to do business in a um, number of Middle Eastern countries, mm -hmm. um, coincidentally, and they are having, I was actually thinking of having met you briefly before, because they were saying, oh, we're having real difficulty getting um, these people to buy into having video conference calls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can see that as a, a yeah, yes, I can see that. Yeah, mm. um, I think it's something that that again the intimacy is is um, a a meeting. I hate the expression face to face, but yes, a personal meeting I think is more important. I think there is this concept that by you having clearly shown your commitment, having travelled, mm -hmm. um, means that it uh, means a huge amount more to to the individual that that you're going to be there with. Um, and I think they are wise enough to know that, I remember this when I was um, working with some of the um, armed forces there, that, that the quality of the product was almost measured by the durability of the individual that was selling it. So there was a concept whereby if the man himself wasn't going to come to sit next to me and talk to me about this, then really is he going to come and support the product or the service that he's trying to sell me? So there's a degree of linking of the two into, into one as to, as to how dependable this product or service might actually be. Mm. And maybe that, this video thing, is, is just a little bit too remote or false. Yes. Yes, I, I, um, I didn't comment on it. I was just thinking that you know, I, I, I think the assumption that everybody has bought into the mm. new technology equally yeah. as a very rash one. Absolutely. And and they um, there are some wonderful, there's an expression that I've heard many, many times, which is in this rush for the West and pace and time, there's a lovely cartoon, which I've, I've got somewhere in one of the presentations, where um, there's a Western office and it's in an Arab newspaper and it's absolutely covered in clocks, or walls, every inch of the wall <laughs> is covered in clocks right. because they rightly recognise that we have this absolute obsession with time mm -hmm. and therefore 
But to them, time is a God-given thing which you must manage through multitasking. But fundamentally, time is for the, the guest, the visitor, the other people. Mm-hmm. And you mustn't dominate your life by time. And therefore, we do behave in that extraordinary way whereby we race to the diary the whole time. And they used to, I don't know if it's used anymore, there used to be a wonderful expression whereby one of the worst behaviours, which I've come across a few times, is that as you're on your way to the airport, you've already checked out, and you rush through, basically hoping after a week in the country to pick up the contract, which is a great sort of Western idea. Yes. And they call those individuals Abu Samsonite, or Abu Shamta, which is father <laughs> of the suitcase, because he is just the man in a rush who is just quickly coming through on his way to see his so-called friend to just quickly pick up the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are amusing anecdotes like that that they use to describe our, our obsession with time and pace and the diary. Um, I've I, I seen um, sort of uh, arrangements for trade missions that you know must fall foul of that because it's almost like taking... Um, you know, a whole bunch of business people um, to a country almost on, you know, you know every, everything from initial meeting to contract from Monday to Thursday. Um, I don't get that impression. I think the trade mission, if well-structured and well-briefed and fundamentally, if well-prepared, actually is a successful model. Good. It meets the right parameters in the sense that you are ensuring a personal contact. There is a personal meeting. Mm-hmm. There is an opportunity to see, even to a limited degree, uh, the sort of product that they are um, looking to provide. Crucially, there is a sense, and often these are sponsored by embassies, or the embassy in the country has a huge amount of um, impact or influence on the event, that you then come almost with a government, or not so strongly as that, but certainly an official recommendation of some sort. You are under a British flag and you wouldn't be there if they couldn't trust you, Mm -hmm. or you weren't trusted by your own nation. So if constructed correctly, I think that's right. What is important, and most of the trade mission managing organisations now do that very well, is that they manage the expectation that you're not going to walk away from that with a, with a contract. In fact, you should really, it is a taster. You will have met some powerful, influential um, local nationals who run companies that might represent you. But you should, if it's a good trade mission, have at least three that you might consider, who also need to prove to you that you, you might be the right partner. So, okay. as, a, as a model, we use it at the end of our second phase as a measure of how good your progress is. I think, finally, the value of the trade missions is that actually you do, if you have done it correctly and you're shaped correctly, you will get your first response to your marketing material, your pitch, and your, how well you are able to translate, and is there an understanding of it? So for all those things, it's an extremely invaluable three days, and I will always use them, always. Right. Um, one of the inevitable pushbacks that I hear from people about doing business in, in countries in the Middle East, in Africa, and so forth, is um, the, and now particularly with legislation of the last few years, um, uh, stronger in the United States than here in the UK, mm-hmm. very scared of the um, risk of corruption. 
Um, and they're very scared of building a relationship where they find themselves inadvertently committing or feeling uh, the other party feeling that they have committed to a corrupt mm. act. Mm. How does that get avoided? That is becoming one of the key factors, and you know better than I the anti-bribery in the, the FCPA, the, the perhaps slightly less stringent US law. Um, is playing a huge part in that, mm. and they're absolutely right to be so. My counter to it is back to slightly what I said earlier. If you are shaped correctly, if you go to the country with the correct strategy, but fundamentally go to the country understanding that you are looking for friends and partners and not looking just to sell, whereby the partnership that you strike with whichever organization, individual or company, is one that is mutually beneficial and both sides can contribute and benefit. It doesn't matter literally in the early stages where, whether, whether it's translation, whether it's your rapid or better movement through visa, through passports, through, it can be transport. Some of the measures can be quite simple. But the point about it is that both sides then see the value addition and thereby the invoicing between the two is not at that extreme as it has been. Right. Because quite frankly, part of the problem is, it, and it's one of my frustrations slightly, because everyone will always say that the corruption is actually on their side. And yet if you look at some of the pricing disparity that we allow by the export of frankly massively overpriced product and the benefit and profit that is then accrued in this country, whereas the enablers, the partner in the, in the foreign country is by no means... Um, as well off in that. It is therefore not surprising that in the end someone says, well, I'm sorry to get that letter of accreditation or whatever it is, I'm going to or will have, might have, charged you a great deal more because this is just not fair. I know what the end price is here. Mm -hmm. So part of most of the problem is actually just this pricing imbalance. But I go back to shape yourself correctly, make sure you have the right partnership where both sides can add value and therefore raise credible and sensible invoices and you will not, should not encounter that problem and that's one of my baselines to everything that I try and do. Right. Are there any particular types of business that can be done in the Middle East that are actually easier to get going and talk to people about than others? There's a much changing uh, world out there and there are have always been um, certain businesses that have perhaps seen to be simpler than others. The current real interest is anything that will allow a rapid but effective technology transfer, knowledge and technology transfer. Right. The concept that you are just going to sell your product and you might, the words, get away with a little bit of local support management maybe even just warranty support, those days are absolutely gone. Right. So the mentality have we have got to change in the West. And it must be said that some Western countries, companies, are finding that quite difficult because it is clearly fraught with intellectual property and many of the other issues, mm -hmm. is that if the technology is incredibly complicated, if it is very advanced, and if there is one particular IP or something that is the kernel that is very close to being discoverable, then clearly people do have a challenge with that. As far as um, what is in vogue at the moment, technology quite clearly is one. 
communications has been one for some time. Mm-hmm. Transport is huge. There are massive rail networks now coming up. The incredible um, systems across Dubai, um, the rails, the uh, travel generally. That that industry, I think, um, the services of of the military and the defence industries, security industries have always been strong and and will always be so. But they are looking very rapidly. Uh, in line with the, the Crown Prince's directive in Saudi Arabia and indeed the vision statements from the UAE um, to domesticize or nationalize much, much, much of that industry to be able to serve their own armed forces for the right reasons. So a long answer to your question, the fundamental is what is, what is most popular is the system, the product, that the company that is delivering it is happiest to see transfer and start that local production. That was preferred five years ago or ten years ago. It became slightly mandated about five years ago and I think we're heading to the stage where you will not sell unless you are going to manufacture or at least part manufacture in the country you're going to sell to. I think that's a sort of growing thing everywhere. It's not as simple as make it here and export it. No, absolutely. Those days are well gone. Um, And we need to understand and and learn to work with that. And some countries, companies, are really struggling still with that that concept. Yeah, I think particularly the smaller um, companies are sort of more insular. Many of them are sort of more reluctant, not necessarily because they're thinking about their intellectual property, more perhaps because they're thinking about the complexities of managing their business. And, um, you know, Possibly. You, yeah, I, if I you make widgets here and ship them to um, you know, the UAE, that's nice and simple and straightforward. Yeah. If you have to sort of manufacture or complete partial assembly in mm. the UAE, then of course that makes life a lot more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. The other aspect that I I come across more than anything else is that sense that perhaps the level of national competence is not at the level that it might be in the West. And that is yet another myth that is rapidly either should be dismissed Mm -hmm. or, or is very evidently simply not true. I I think that's a very common misconception. Yeah. Continues to be one. I have taken, I think in the end we had 15, we started with about 20, extremely competent simulation engineer. I mean, 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 it was aircraft simulation. Probably the most advanced IT and mechanical engineering you will find. And by the time we had finished, we had trained 12 extremely competent young, um, in this case, Saudi, um, IT engineers. It is not true that they are not capable. They are absolutely extremely capable. We just need to make sure that we transfer and give them that time. And there's a much wider world. I mean, I see uh, in in some of the trade nationalism that you see going on at the moment. I thought the the scare that you know these countries, other countries, are stealing our IP. Mm. Um, there's, there's an argument that um, a significant part of that can be that the companies who have the IP here or in the US mm. or wherever um, are actually reluctant to go and own the IP and the career and the use of that IP in the other countries. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, it get, yes it gets stolen, but not so much because. Uh, uh, people are deliberately stealing it to take it away. It's more that there's a, a pushback from um, Western companies to going and doing things there. Hmm. Uh, there are some really, really successful models, and 
no need to mention name, but there was certain one certain international uh, manufacturer of, of very good rifle systems who have identified right from the outset and um, that there is probably only one part of that system, in this case it's the rifle barrel, that is absolutely key to IP. If that fails, their reputation, the entire system is faulty and you will probably end up killing the man using it. Right. So the sim- one of the simpler and I find recently more effective systems is that if a company says that right that is our IP and we cannot move from that what you do with the rest the stock the barrel the site whatever else you need around it absolutely let's nationalize but let's agree that we hold on to that which is our absolute key at reputation and I think that's a really effective model yeah I think it's very important um, and I've seen that before in a completely different context of product yep. where loudspeakers, the IP was actually the magnetic cone or whatever right. you call it in the loudspeaker. Yeah. Basically putting a wooden box around it can be done anywhere. Anywhere that's got wooden. Uh, and property. probably more cheaply and often oh, inevitably. even if it's made by hand probably to better quality. And avoids or reduces import duties. Hmm. Things like that. So it might be done certainly at lower cost. Absolutely, yeah. So let's get away from those things, let's look at some other areas. What about language? Um, If we're talking about the Middle East, Mm. how important is it to be able to go and speak Arabic? It's one of those strange things. If you you think of the belief in in, in understanding the country you're about to work with, it's... It is in many ways like the, the upside-down triangle. And I say that because if you want to understand the French, you really do need to speak French. It's mm-hmm. a very simple premise. Yeah. The Arab mind is generous civilly, enough sorry. to... Oh, sorry. C'est vrai. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Arab um, wonderful mind works in slightly more reverse. That Yes, the foundation of your understanding must be the culture, the way that, that thinking and so forth. And by their own admission, and often pride, the language is the top of the pinnacle, because it is not easy. I say that having been privileged to learn and use it for probably most of my life now, but that last little peak of the triangle is is not easy to achieve. Your Any effort made to try and speak it is massively appreciated, and uh, certainly we teach the, the very basics, the greetings and so on, so that you you understand in that. So that's one aspect of it. The other is that actually for a people that that often have to confer out of respect internally, there is sometimes a sense that they quite enjoy speaking to each other in a language that not everyone immediately understands and we would all love that privilege. Mm-hmm. So most certainly my advice is if you have learnt it, and some there are some that do, you have to declare it that you do speak it, because otherwise the impression is that you are really being very dishonest. All oh, right, yes, I can so, see that. So there are, there's a, a, a strange twist to that. Mm-hmm. So my advice has been throughout all of the training we do is that by all means make the effort, learn to love it, have some, the, understand the greetings and the expressions, but it is not absolutely mandatory to speak it, and indeed what matters more is that you understand how to behave and how to be them and how to work with them to become your friends. And that does not have to be the language. Right. So before we finish, Jan, tell me a bit about uh, your training. You've mentioned it a few times. Yeah. And I know that many, almost ubiquitously around the world, people dress up their um, packages as 
bronze, silver, <laughs> and gold, and you've more far more appropriately got gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, uh, what's in these? Um, what's the your basic principle that we've applied is that there are a few people in our space, as there should be, and you will find individual companies that will teach you how to drink coffee. There are some who will help you with offset or with surely a law. But what fundamentally I have found is that the, the approach has to be a campaign approach. Hence the expression we use, from kahwa to contract, from coffee to contract. Because the sequencing of what you do is the most important. And in order to achieve that, we've broken down the training, the induction packages into those three, gold, frankincense and myrrh. There's a huge amount of detail in those packages, but in broad outline, by the end of gold, which is a, can be anything up to two and a half days, you have a competent, interested, no longer um, preconceptually judging um, individual um, who is most definitely capable of managing or hosting or being part of a hosting team when you go out to the region or indeed if there's somebody coming here. By the end of Frankincense, the middle piece, you have shaped your marketing, you're completely configured, you've got a strategy, you've got a budget, you know the length of time, and you are probably at a trade mission stage and will have done a trade mission. And then by the end of Gold, which really gets into the technicalities, we're now looking at how we propose, how we bid, all of the negotiation, how you manage the RFI and the RFP process. And it's often at that stage that we discover what the company really wanted us to come and help them with, which is a major tender or a proposal or even a regional office or something like that. And we frequently then, um, we then retain or are retained then on a longer term. And that can be a month, a, a year or one hour a week, whatever it might be, as we just continue to be the cultural filter. But my principle behind all this is that the sequencing of your campaign has got to be in the right order. There is a right and a wrong time to meet the ambassador. There's a right and a wrong time to translate. There is a right and a wrong time to travel. And if you get that sequencing right, it will go well. If you don't, you will trip up. And tripping up in that region, the effect of a mistake is not forgotten as readily as it might be here. And that's why the sequence is so important. It's fascinating. And with the size of contracts that businesses are eventually looking to land in that region, I can well understand there's a huge criticality to getting it right. I mean, yes. We've been talking for half an hour and hardly scratched the surface, I think. Uh, absolutely. So. And I think one of the, my drivers with this, perhaps almost in a conclusion, is that I think when I first went out to the region, I was born there, but when I first went out to the region, what, now, nearly 25, 30 years ago now, there were some wonderful older senior members of family, sheikhs and others, who were vaguely, smilingly tolerant of some transgression. I am finding that with a younger interneting, Facebooking generation, that tolerance level has, has come down. And rightly, the question is, you know, how difficult is it for you to understand that I don't eat a ham sandwich? It really isn't hard. And what's more, if you aren't going to get that bit right, do I then really want to come and buy an aircraft off you? Because do you really care about actually any of this? And so that's why I think this is becoming so important, that, that it's culture that matters now. Fascinating. Yeah, and thank you so much, um, audience. If you'd like to know more, if your um, curiosity has been tickled by this or you're planning on working 
um, in this region and uh, anxious to get the culture right, you can find um, information about Yan, International Culture Pilot, and all that he does on the uh, page that accompanies this podcast on growinternational.org and hope you find it very interesting and certainly get in touch with Yan if you've got any further questions. Yan, thank you again. My pleasure. Ahlam as they say. Very welcome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and this podcast. I really welcome your comments and also suggestions for future conversations. We post new content every week. So please do click on the subscribe button and follow this, the Growth Through International Expansion podcast. You can also find the transcript, other articles and detailed resources relating to this episode on our website, growinternational.org. There, you can also join as a member for future updates and find all our other articles, videos and podcasts and benefit from other features, including free consultations and independent online advice. Again, that's www.growinternational.org. Until next time, this is Oliver Dowson wishing you success and reminding you that international expansion may be easier than you may think. Mm -hmm.